This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. This week, we're talking elections. We're talking about a breakthrough deal between Israel and Lebanon. And we are talking to the Holocaust historian, the US special envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism, and the Jewish warrior, Deborah Lipstadt. It's Unholy in London. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian. And I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy to Jews on the News from Kesha Podcast, Jonathan. It's 18 days away, 18 days from election night broadcast. So much can still happen, yet I have to say it's a very strange election season, very protractive and lengthy and tedious. I don't want to say boring. I'm stopping it boring. But it's very, very strange. It's not the energies and emotion, energy and emotion we're used to seeing in Israeli elections yet, maybe because we're still in the high holidays. But um, definitely we're itching ever more closer. Why is it when you say 18 days like that, I picture immediately one of those prisoners in a cell who's got numbers crayoned on the wall, chalked on the on the wall of the cell, you know, in groups of five, striking a line through. It's only 18 days to go. Um, you're not conveying huge enthusiasm for this part of your job. I referred last week to you and your white suit that you wear on election night, which I know is, you know, away from the dry cleaners. It's hung, hanging up in the cupboard. It's got cellophane over it. It's ready to roll. It's um, a new suit every election, every single it? time. Is yes, it? it is. It is. Ah, okay. Because then that con- ah, that goes against I- what I was expecting you to do. Because the parallel I had in my mind, the, the there was a very distinguished, still alive, British war correspondent called Martin Bell, mm-hmm. who covered all kinds of wars in all kinds of places, who took to wearing a white suit, and it was always the same white suit. It was his lucky mm-hmm. white suit, which he believed saved him from gunfire. He then was elected to Parliament, actually, in Britain, and will continue to wear it in, co- in the House of Commons, because he said, there is no war zone more vicious than the floor <laughs> of the House of Commons. Um, so I was thought yours was a lucky white suit, but no, you've now you've broken that, that no, superstition. No, it's not a Martin Bell-esque story. It is a different suit each time. There is, by the way, I can tell you a little secret, there's a backup white suit every time after the uh, how shall we call it? Coffee cop debacle of 2006, in which I spilled coffee on my white suit 10 minutes before the broadcast uh, began. So there's always a backup. Uh, but I think the reason... Was there a backup that year? Was there no, a backup then? No, there what did wasn't. You do? Um, what well, did you do? I, the, the stylist got a heart attack and we found a, there was a, another white suit just coincidentally in the, in the closet. So we, I went with that. But that was, yes, that was many years ago. Uh, many election cycles ago. Uh, but since then, there is a backup white suit. And uh, and the reason for the white really is because, and I don't want to sound too corny or anything, but, you know, this is a sort of festive day, I think. It really is a celebration of democracy. And whatever the serious issues are, and there are many serious issues, and we go through them through election night, obviously the most salient of questions, are we going down the rabbit hole to election six and many other questions. But I think the tone of the broadcast, and I think the white kind of symbolizes that, is that we are, I am even personally very appreciative of the fact that we live in a democracy and that we can vote and we have that right. And you don't have to go so back in time to see how quickly democracy can fade. And this is so important. And we talked about this, I think, you and I, about how the fact that Israelis still go to the polls and the voting rate is is so high. There's almost 70% in all of these cycles um, of voter turnout. And so it is kind of a festive day. The tone of the, the broadcast is quite festive and so is the white suit. That was a large, longer explanation than you wanted for the long white, white suit. suit. No, no, white suit. And we should say that for on the high holy days of... Um, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, just gone now. Yeah, r- religious Jews, Orthodox Jews will dress all in white. I had never thought of that um, reasoning. I quite like that, that there is, I mean, I'm not saying it's a day of atonement, <laughs> when, when, um, or, but it is kind of judgment day. And so there is, I get the, um, <clears throat> the festive imagery of wearing right. all white. I was thinking also it's that notion of there is a sort of fresh start. There is what democracy offers each time is a kind of clean slate. Yeah. You do get to start again. That in a democracy, politics is a renewable resource. So that's yeah. all ca- captured in the white suit. And you thought we were just going to do talk about dry cleaning. So that <laughs> is, um, 
So 18 days to go. There you are on your prison wall, chalking down the days. The thing I have to say leapt out at me uh, as we f- uh, count down to elections in your country is the poll which showed that one of the big winners, I think even potentially the third biggest party, third or fourth, mm-hmm. is the far-right party uh, of Itamar Ben-Gvir. We've talked about him before, the son of, you know, politically an heir to Rabbi Meir Kahana, a Jewish fascist, really, by any other description. It's really chilling to me that Ben Gvir is going to be, I think we said the other day, he's very likely to be the story of the election. There's always one. And what that will do for for Israeli Arabs that he is often hateful towards in his rhetoric. You told us the other day that he tells his supporters, don't say death to the Arabs, say death to the terrorists, now trying to tone down the image. But he is a racist politician. And what that does for the victims of his rhetoric, what it does for Israel's democracy, but also what it will do, uh, I can't help but think, for uh, Jews around the world who are automatically, whether they like it or not, identified with Israel, held to account for how Israel behaves. It's going to be a very bumpy period if he is there as a big force in the new Knesset and in Israeli life. Yeah, I mean, you you, you mentioned uh, correctly the poll that we uh, published this week uh, says that he is the third largest party with 13 seats in the Israeli parliament out of 120. That means that he has, according to the polls, not the official results yet, he has more seats than Gantz, the uh, defense uh, minister, with his 12 seats in the polls. This is a shift. He's taking mandates only from one party, right? If you look at the past months, you see the Likud losing one seat every month and Ben Gvir gaining one seat. So if he started in nine, he's now in 13. If they started at 35, they're now at 31. That is becoming a problem not only for the Israeli left and the Israeli center, and as you mentioned, diaspora Jews, this is becoming a problem for Benjamin Netanyahu as well. He wants Ben Gvir because he needs that magic number of 61. He doesn't want a very strong Ben Gvir that can pressure him to take any sort of portfolio that he might uh, take in his government. We should notice, by the way, and we talked about this, Jonathan, what are the options, what are the scenarios? If it's not Netanyahu getting the 61, we talked about an option that Benny Gantz will break through and maybe bring with him the Orthodox parties. Right now, in that math that I'm talking about, in which Gantz has 12 seats, he can't manage to get to that 61. So this is all... In, in question here. But again, as you say, this powerful uh, uh, rise, ascension of, <clears throat> of Itamar Benkville is definitely an issue and definitely a serious one in these elections. And what would be your explanation for why a body of Israeli voters are turning from the right to the further right? What's his appeal? I mean, I can guess at it, but I'd much rather hear your view of it. Well, we discussed this before. I think there are a few reasons for his appeal. One is, and I'm, I'm starting from the sort of largest uh, zoom out uh, bird's eye vision and, and closing in on the person himself. First of all, we see this around the world, this wave of populism, right? These people, these charismatic characters who convince the public that they have the simple solution for their difficult problems. That is one thing. The second is, of course, that Israeli public has moved more and more to the right in recent years because I think it's also uh, interesting if you claim that the reality has moved to the right. I mean, there, the more there are terror attacks, the more there's something that the Israeli public is, is, is dealing with and these sort of simple solutions are easier to buy into. This also this issue of a protest vote, right? The young Israelis are, you know, they want to upset their parents, so they tell their parents they're voting for Benville to upset them. That's also pretty prominent. And he himself is a very charismatic figure. He's on television a lot, and he he manages to galvanize his own base. He's way more charismatic than Bitsalis Motrich is, who's the original leader of the religious Zionism and is the, the top of the list in that party. So all of these reasons are why Ben Gvir has managed to break through. Again, if he does become very powerful, he himself will have a problem because the minute he becomes part of a coalition or part of a government, if Netanyahu indeed is the prime minister then he stops being that alternative, right? And the person who can uh, be the opposition to everything else that is going on. And then you're going to see his numbers shrinking and shrinking. So this whole thing is a very, very interesting phenomenon. It's very hard to see it on from the sidelines without any emotions. It's a very, very interesting phenomenon. In these elections, I can tell you that the uh, Israeli satire program, uh, Eretz Nederet, presented him as Netanyahu's partner and the music behind them, the background music was Springtime for Hitler. That created a bit of an uproar here in this country, 
But it, it shows you what parts of the Israeli uh, center and the Israeli left think about Itamar Ben-Gvir. It also means that both sides are going to be very galvanized going to the polls, either because they want to support him or because they want to vehemently oppose him. That's bold from the satirical show to have done right. that. I think that's good that they did that. And the... Um, no, the worry I think I would have about it, and I think this may be what foreign observers, the gloss they put on it, is outgoing government had Arab party in it. A body of voters couldn't stand that, and therefore the backlash was to elect in big numbers an anti-Arab party. That may be a very crude gloss, but in the same way that, you know, Barack Obama, first America's first black president, is succeeded by Donald Trump, the idea that there is a backlash among voters after there has been some move towards a more inclusive, representative, progressive, you know, use insert whatever word you like. There can be in politics that kind of backlash. And so just very crudely, the idea of a party whose leader did previously encourage the slogan death to the Arabs, uh, that they are the big winners after an administration that included the first Arab party mm -hmm. to participate in that way. Um, I think, as I say, I think we all need to be bracing ourselves for that outcome. It's dispiriting, to say the least. Meanwhile, um, slightly confounding my expectations, because I thought last time we talked about this, this would be something that would be postponed till after the voters had delivered their judgment. But it seems as if an agreement has been reached on the, on a decision that I thought would be too ticklish to do before the election. So why don't you tell us? Yeah, you and me both, uh, my friend, I have to say. I think last time we talked about the uh, Lebanon-Israeli uh, maritime border agreement. And we thought, yeah, there is a breakthrough. But uh, how does Lapid uh, do this before the election? So now not only a breakthrough, but the Israeli government gave it the green light. So did the Lebanese government. There is a deal. We now know the details of uh, the deal. And we also know that Prime Minister Lapid decided to fast track this and uh, basically go for the government ratification, which is legal and not pass through parliamentary uh, vote. We will go back to that uh, decision by him. So just to recap what we know now, this deal, obviously, as we said, uh, ends this long-running dispute between Israel and Lebanon. We're talking about something like 860 square kilometers, 330 square miles in the Mediterranean Sea, we, which have two oil fields. One is Karish, Hebrew for shark, just thought I'd throw that in, uh, that no one disputes besides Hezbollah that is actually Israeli uh, territory. The other one is Kana. Now that was a problem because Kana oil field, even by any line you want to cut it through, either the Israelis who wanted the maritime border to be parallel to the actual border between two countries, or Lebanon that wanted it a little bit uh, lower than that or southern than that, each line uh, by the way, the Lebanese line was the one that's accepted in the deal. Each line cuts this Kana oil field anyway. So you can't actually develop it because no one will come in to develop this if it's disputed. And you have to compensate Israel somehow for the part that it gives up. Now, essentially what we know about the deal is this, Jonathan. Israel said, my security interests are the most important thing for me. I will make some concessions, financial concessions and what I will receive in compensation. But essentially I will get, and this is, I think, the part that is historic, really, in the deal, the the uh, uh, acknowledgement of the Lebanese government in my security issues, the five-kilometer uh, line next to the uh, shore, and obviously this uh, deal signed, which means that if each side has an oil field, then each side has something to lose. And that ma makes Israel, in, in its opinion, more secure because Hezbollah is not going to attack an oil field, an Israeli oil field. Again, Israel got 17% of the revenues of the uh, Lebanese oil field. Many Israelis think that's not enough. And of course, you have Netanyahu coming out saying they sold our land, they sold our money, they sold our gas. This is a capitulation to uh, the Lebanese government and to Nasrallah. Does anybody say, I kind of know the answer to this question, does anybody say, you know what, given the climate crisis, getting oil and gas and fossil fuels out the ground is not the way we want to go anyway? This is not the direction we should be looking at? You're literally laughing. <laughs> does anybody say that? Anybody that isn't Jonathan Friedland, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 no. assume, I assume there are some uh, environmentalists. Fringe, saying this, wacko but environmentalists. But it's, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But it's, it's, let's say that is drowned out in the general discussion, which is around 
uh, the fact that this we are in an election season. Now, look, we have to say this. The Mossad, the Shin Bet, all of the defense echelon Israel, the, uh, the IDF all said this is an important deal for Israel. We have to sign this deal. Two things need yeah. to be said, right? One is the optics of this. Whatever you say, even if, and I'm channeling my inner Donald Trump here, even if this is the best deal in the history of deals, the optics of this going on three weeks, less than three weeks before the elections and not going through the Knesset, even though the attorney general authorized this, is a bit of an issue. Israel is saying, Lapid is saying, we had a window of opportunity because the Lebanese government, the president is going to step down at the end of October. That was our window of opportunity. We had to go for it now. It is still an issue. And the issue of guarantees for Israel. How do you manage the fact that Hezbollah doesn't actually put its money, its hands on this money at the end of the day is a question. I spoke to U.S. envoy man with his name on the deal, Amos Hochstein for Israeli television. This is what he had to say about the issue of guarantees for Israel. Yoni, what Israelis have to understand, this is not a traditional agreement. It is not a line where somebody got more and by extension, by definition, somebody got less. Both sides could win here because both sides wanted different things, needed different things. Lebanon needed the gas development to be the last country to finally join the Eastern Mediterranean development after Cyprus and Israel and Egypt and Greece. But Israel did not need the gas in that particular field because it was never going to be developed only from the Israeli side. It was impossible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, what Israel really needs is the security and knowing that from the Karish field all the way down south, there will not be the threat of missiles. There was not going to be the threat of uh, of harm that would uh, that would come in Israeli waters. No, look, putting aside my uh, requirement as a Guardian journalist to raise the environmental objection. That's actually, I'm contractually obliged to raise that point, given the climate emergency. But putting that aside, if you are going to get fossil fuel out of the ground, absolutely, this deal seems the right move to me, for all those security reasons. I mean, the idea that the two countries become interlocked economically, so that mm -hmm. one's good fortune depends on the good fortune and stability of the other, that is exactly the logic of all those who used to talk about an economic peace. If you remember Shimon Peres talking about a new Middle East, all of them, the premise of that view was if these countries of the Middle East become economically interdependent, mm -hmm. so there becomes a reciprocity the, uh, and a mutual sort of benefit that, you know, you do well, I do well, that is the way to get peace. It won't be through wonderful speeches and Nobel Prizes. It'll be by economic integration. It's why a lot of people think the ultimate end point, if there ever were an agreement between Israelis and Palestinians, was offer both membership of the European Union or something, associate mm -hmm. membership of the European Union, that it's when countries trade with each other, they don't fight with each other. All that logic, for all those reasons, old-fashioned some of them now, even though they were seen as very cutting-edge, when people like Shimon Peres were talking about them. For all those reasons, I think this has to be a good deal. I wonder if Lapid, who is not a, you know, no fool in matters of politics, we have to now say, 10 mm -hmm. years on into his political career, whether he thinks, even with all the caveats you said and all the optics problems, whether he thinks there is a constituency in Israel that likes to see the sort of statesmanship of a prime minister cutting a deal with a previously or even ongoingly hostile Arab mm -hmm. state, that that's a that's a big prize. You saw it with Netanyahu with um, the Abraham Accords. You going back with Rabin and Oslo and all that. At the time, it did mean a lift for the prime minister whose signature was on the paper because it looks like statesmanship. Is yep. I mean, I ask it as a question: Is that the calculus Lapid's making? That yeah, for all the downsides, there may be a political electoral upside. Yeah, well, obviously, eighteen days before elections, I would be surprised if he doesn't see everything through that prism as well. By the way, there is a support; there is high support in the polls for this deal. This is why you heard Netanyahu saying, when I get to power, I will cancel the deal, I'll rip it up. And then he stopped saying that because he saw the same polls that said that there's support in the Israeli public for this. We'll see the bump if there is a bump uh, for Lapid. But also, I think what really made a difference for him is the fact that every one of the heads of the, the make the Israeli security echelon, all of them said this deal has to be signed. That, I assume, was also a very, very prominent reason for why they wanted to go through it now.
Our special guest for this week's Unholy is a legend in the Jewish world, I think it's fair to say. We said at the top and described at the top as a Jewish warrior, Holocaust historian, now the official United States special envoy monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. She is, of course, Deborah Lipstadt. Deborah Lipstadt, welcome to Unholy. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We, we, I mean, your job is officially a United States job, but it has this global reach. You and I are sitting together in London. What does it tell us the, uh, about you, the fact you've come here to London? Does it suggest you think the UK has a particular problem with anti-Semitism? Well, the glo- first of all, the global reach of my job is, uh, as by law, everyone who works in the State Department, in the United States State Department, I would assume it's not dissimilar in your foreign office, are reaches outside the borders of the United States. Uh, but when it comes to anti-Semitism, sometimes it's harder to make the distinction between domestic and international, but more of that later. Why London? It's not my first stop on my trip. I was in the Gulf in July. I was in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and then in Israel actually twice, once on my own and once with the president when he went back to visit. And then Argentina and Chile. And after all that, I said, I got to get to the UK. And the reason I come to the UK, I have a long history here, as you well know, and your listeners will probably know as well. Um, but more than that, I think the UK in many ways often sounds serves as a petri dish for mm. what we see going global. I think it's certainly the case in terms of the campus, the university campus. Uh, what we, what you saw on the university campus or seen in the university campus over the past decade, decade and a half, has reached the United States, has reached Canada in full force. So I don't think you can really differentiate in the, in that way. Or you can say the UK uh, holds a special place, a unique place, maybe not uniquely unique, but somewhat unique, uh, though you can't modify unique, as your uh, <laughs> listeners who are uh, grammarians will know. Um, Our co-host who's a grammarian. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Can't big on the say very comment. unique. You can't say very unique. You can't, you can't, unique. it's either unique or not. But, but there was a uh, a famous uh, theologian who wrote about the Holocaust, she and her husband, and she used to say the Holocaust is uniquely unique. So I think, in any case, that's a divergence. The UK is important, A, because it's the UK and its history and its influence in the world, and B, because, as I said earlier, it's a petri dish uh, for what often expands to other places, especially in, in the West and Western democracies. So, so what do you see? You mentioned campus. You mentioned college campuses. What do you see there that that worries you? What worries me on college campuses, and you know, uh, the there's a confluence between Israel criticism of Israel and comments and attitudes towards Israel and anti-Semitism. First, let's say ground rules. And again, I'm, this is bringing Coles to Newcastle to quote a a famous uh, British author, a playwright, to say that criticism of Israeli policy is not anti-Semitism. And anybody who makes that point or who argues that says, oh, if they crit- if you criticize Israeli policy, you're going to be accused of anti-Semitism, has never vid- visited a cafe in Tel Aviv when there's a right-wing <laughs> government or a cafe in Jerusalem when there's a left-wing government or center-left because uh, criticism of Israeli policy is... The second, I would say maybe it's prior to football, you know, in, in Israel as a national sport. It is. We're not talking about that at all. And in fact, it's dangerous to say criticism of your country's policy is being anti your country. I'm critical of American policy at times. Uh, and certainly, uh, everyone else can be critical. That's what democracy is all about. But having said that, it's clear that at certain points, um, hostility towards the Jewish state is used as a cover for anti-Semitism, or it it is so out of whack. And, and there's what to criticize, as there's what to criticize in the policies of any country, that you have to ask, what's going on here? I'll, I'll give you an anecdote from my personal experience. I was once in a university town having for meetings, consultations, whatever it was, no, quite a few years ago. And I saw it was a large public university. And I saw that in the announcements that that evening, there'd be a lecture on the Middle East. 
And I said, I'll go. Maybe I'll learn something, be interesting, et cetera. Well, it was a, a quite hostile, hostile to Israel, but it was an interesting lecture. And afterwards, as I was walking out, people were standing in little groups talking, dissecting the lecture. And I happened to get caught up in one group, none of the people I knew, and they didn't know me. One gentleman in the group said, uh, well, I don't think Israel should, should exist uh, because it displaced an indigenous people doesn't have a right to exist. Now, I didn't want, I said, I'm not going to get into the fight over, did it displace an indigenous people? Didn't it displace, you know, because then I didn't want to get into the weeds. But I said, you know, that's interesting that you say that. Uh, I said, so, so what does that say about the United States of America? Hmm. Well, what does that say about Canada and the First Nation, you know, the indigenous people there. What does it say about Australia and the Aborigines or uh, New Zealand and the Maoris? I didn't go to uh, China and, and I didn't go to Rwang, uh, uh, the Rohingya, uh, to Myanmar. I, I wanted to stay with democracy. What does it say about the UK and the colonial empire? Um, in other words, I'm not saying that makes it right, you know, that because if, if you're saying Israel displaced the indigenous people again, which is, is a historical debate. Um, but what I was saying is why this disproportionate focus? Um, I'm not just, I'm not using that to justify. I don't want to make that very clear. Uh, but what this disproportionate focus leads me to ask, what else is going on here? So, um, I, that's what I see a lot on the campus. I see on the campus students who probably couldn't locate Israel on a map, which is hard to do. You know, it's one of those countries <laughs> where you have to print the name in the Mediterranean. Uh, because even if you're a, a right winger and you believe in, you know, sea to sea borders, it's, you still can't fit the name on, on the map. But uh, what else is happening there? And so I think sometimes it starts as hostility to Israel and it morphs over into anti-Semitism. And sometimes it starts as anti-Semitism, which is cloaked in uh, hostility to Israel. When we're talking now about the you know, boundary between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, it suggests that as often, and particularly here, the conversation about anti-Semitism very frequently becomes about anti-Semitism from the left. Mm. And yet, you know, do you think we spend collectively too much time and attention on that when the, the really murderous threat comes, and I'm thinking of the Tree of Life Synagogue mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh, the murderous threat comes instead from the far right. Are we collectively looking in some ways excessively in the wrong direction? Um, this is what, when I was, uh, had my hearings, cause I'm, uh, Senate confirmed, presidential nomination, Senate confirmed because of my rank as an ambassador. In my, uh, hearings before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I said, you know, that I would be an equal opportunity fighter of anti-Semitism. That it didn't matter to me where it came from, from the right or from the left. I was against it. And what I often find, and, and others have begun to pick up on this message, that People on the left are very good and correct at the anti-Semitism and the threat they see at the far right, uh, Tree of Life, San Diego, the Poway shooting, uh, the Charlottesville rally. And if you want to move beyond, beyond specific anti-Semitism, Dylan Roof at Mother Emanuel Charleston in the church in Charleston, where he came in and studied with the people and then murdered them, and so many other uh issues like that and the far right being very, very dangerous in terms of racism, anti-Semitism, the confluence between the two. And the people, my friends on the left are, are absolutely spot on in their analysis of that. My friends on the right, and I'm, I've equal, I have friends on both places. My friends on the right are very good in spotting anti-Semitism on the left, whether it was in the campus, whether it was in the former incarnation of the British Labour Party, uh, whether it's in certain very progressive uh, left uh, individuals, and they're spot on. The problem is that the people on the right don't see it standing right next to them, and the people on the left don't see it standing right next to them. And where do you have what at least used to be called street cred, you know, credibility, is with the people on with whom you agree on so many other issues. You know, we saw it this week in, in the United States uh, with Kanye West. Yee. Um, and his... <laughs> and trips off the tongue, I right, noticed. Right, right. Overtly, unequivocally anti-Semitic statements you know, on a right-wing uh, news uh, broadcast or news show, uh, uh, 
Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And it was just passed over by many people and defended by many people on the right. Oh, no, no, no. He was just calling out social media or whatever it was. Um, and then you see it on the left in many other cases. So, you know, I don't think it's a matter of where you see it. It's almost, Jonathan, to use an analogy, we're coming somewhat out of the COVID pandemic. You know, someone would say uh, he's struck with COVID and she has a terrible case of the flu. I don't want either, you know. And I, I heard another good analogy where the far right is sort of like the hurricane or the tornado. And on the far left, it's more like a rising storm. You know, little by little, the water is going up or like climate change. And suddenly you're not paying attention, you're not paying attention. And then suddenly you're being hit by the overt dangers of climate change. So I'll go after either and, and not prioritize one, even though I think the, the violent danger right now is coming obviously from the far right. You, you did mention uh, Kanye West, and I, I do want to ask you, I mean, is the problem here that prominent people in the public eye are no longer ashamed to see That's right. say these things out loud? It's become a respectable, uh, acceptable. Quote, unquote, it's become acceptable, to, to not yet res acceptable. fully respectable, but acceptable to say these things. Mm -hmm. And in fact, initially, and I think it was the forward that may have had a article on this, initially the major, the Times, the Post, other places, Washington Post, the Times called something, what Kanye West says, what has been described as anti-Semitism right. or yeah. ostensibly, uh, the minute you qualify, you know, I'm talking to two wordsmiths here, especially sitting to my left, that's directional, not uh, political, <laughs> uh, but it might be political too, who knows. Um, Jonathan, who's a wordsmith, as you are you, uh, uh, you know, that, that the minute you qualify it, you're limiting it. You know, I often just say when you get a, uh, if you're a professor or if someone is looking to hire someone and you get a letter of recommendation from, for Britain and they say, oh, he's quite good. Don't even interview him because it's not a compliment. In, in the United States, it's expansive here. It's, it's dismissive. Um, so, uh, you know, but this, this, this failure to say this is overt anti-Semitism, DEFCON on the three on the Jews, that's destruction. Uh, and the things that were left out of Tucker Carlson's uh, podcast, which I think Vox has reported on, were even worse. So it is very disturbing because the it, it's become much more normative, not fully acceptable, but at the very least excusable. Uh, and, and that's very disturbing. Talking of excusable, some people did say, look, he's a guy with documented mental health problems, you know, cut, cut, cut him some slack. Where do you stand on that very particular aspect of it? Um, he's a he's he's a guy with 18 million followers. He's got more followers than I think they're Jews in the world, you know. <sighs> and it, people can have mental health problems or something, and it's a, a sickness that we, you know, if someone gets cancer, we feel bad. If they if they have severe depression, we say buck up, you know, as if it's not a, a disease. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, he may have problems, but that doesn't excuse the spread of anti-Semitism at all. Um, and the very fact that someone with, uh, who, with these mental health problems would fall back on the anti-Semitism, where's that coming from? So I don't cut him slack on that. You mentioned at the top of our conversation that you are no stranger to London and mm -hmm. fate, your, your battle here is famous. And that was when, uh, you ended up, uh, in a courtroom facing off against David Irving. You were the there. Holocaust you tomorrow. were there. I was there. And that's where you and I first mm -hmm. got to know each other. Uh, th that was a famous victory. The judge found entirely against him, said he wasn't a historian. He was, a, in his words, a pro-Nazi polemicist and so on. There was an assumption that in a way Irving and Irvingism had been defeated. Mm -hmm. But now I'm just wondering whether on that latter point, we can feel as confident. And I, the troubling thought I have, and I'd love to hear what you think about it, is that, yes, you defeated David Irving himself, but don't we now live in David Irving's world in the sense that this is now a world where people deny documented facts all the time? That's what he was doing mm -hmm. in that courtroom. And that denial of provable, demonstrable facts goes on even in the former president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, I think, you know, we did achieve a certain victory. Certainly we defeated David Irving. He became, any time afterwards in which he, he could be referred to now legally as David Irving 
confirmed as Holocaust denier, Holocaust denier. What I think we defeated by and large, at least as it comes to the Holocaust, is what I call hardcore Holocaust denial. You know, if a, a, a president of Iran or the former president Ahmadinejad didn't, oh, there were no gas chambers, or Raisi says, you know, well, maybe we have to do more uh, research as if it hasn't been, as if the Holocaust isn't the, has the dubious distinction of being the best documented genocide in the world. When someone does that, there seems beyond the pale. You know, uh, when Mahmoud Abbas in Berlin, no less, talks about 50 Holocausts, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, he's widely decried and, and it's, it's, it's criticized. What has instead taken its place, and David Irving engaged in this, I think, but to a lesser extent, is what I call softcore Holocaust denial. And I use the words hardcore and softcore because we usually use those in relation to pornography. And Holocaust denial is pornographic pornography of history. Um, in the sense that it's an obscenity. It's an obscenity. It's an obscenity about the suffering, the, the greatest genocide we know of. It's an obscenity about a state-sponsored genocide, which was to wipe out an entire people, including if you look at the Vonsei, uh platform programs and the minutes of the Vonsei meeting in Berlin in January 42, taken by Eichmann. It was to wipe out, including the Jews of Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Ireland, etc. State-sponsored, you know, and not just within the state, but outside the state on the entire continent and beyond, Rhodes, Libya, etc. So it's it's obscene in that respect, and it's obscene because it says the Jews made it up. Go back to my template of anti-Semitism. The Jews made it up for their own good, and they skewered the the Germans by making them pay money, the finances, so they could get a, a state, displace another people, harm of another people, etc. So it is it is pornographic in its pornography of history, exactly in that sense. You were going on to say about soft core. A soft so the soft core doesn't say um it didn't happen, but we weren't responsible, or the Jews brought it on themselves. Or, uh, they, they, they talk of too much Holocaust. You know, in my country, the equivalent, too much sl- people say, Oh, I'm tired of hearing about slavery. Well, I'm tired. You're tired of hearing about slavery, but we haven't <laughs> talked enough about slavery and the way it's fundamental to the history of the United States. Many other things are fundamental too, but you can't understand the history of the United States without seriously uh, looking at that. So it's distortion, it's diminution, it's falsely skewering the facts. We were the victims when, yes, you were the victims, but you also uh, were very close with the perpetrators, and we see more of that. But the outright denial, I think that there's no one who's going to say, oh, maybe there weren't gas chambers, or the gas chambers, are no, no serious person. Whereas before the trial, there were... Some serious people who said, oh, well, David Irving knows the documents. So, of course, there was a Holocaust, but maybe there's something to what he said. And I don't think that would be the case. But you still thought that he didn't need to serve a prison sentence, even though. No, no, I don't believe, you know, I know this is uh, uh, someone, an editor at the Washington Post, when I told him this, called this, this was the ultimate man bites dog story. I don't think Holocaust (laughs) denial should be against the law. In my country, of course, uh, because of the First Amendment, and I'm a great proponent of the First Amendment, it's hanging on by its fingernails, but it's still there. Um, And uh, But more than that, from a strategic point of view, um, I think it turns the Holocaust into forbidden fruit. Remember a few years ago, uh, the limits came on uh, publishing Mein Kampf in Germany. And as soon as those limits were raised, Mein Kampf sold, you know, like hotcakes. I don't know, it sold a lot. And uh, then people began to read it and realize that it's the most turgid, you know, uh, uh, hateful kind of stuff. Um, but when you say you can't do something, there are a lot of people, especially young people, say, oh, why are they saying this is against the law? The Holocaust, as exemplified by my case, on the first day of my case, as I was walking into court, I turned to my uh, lawyer and good friend, now Anthony Julius, and I said, I'm really scared. I'm really nervous. He said, Deborah, you're a historian. The facts are on our side. And, you know, and he was right. I mean, we just, um, we demolished David Irving with the facts. 
We tracked the footnotes, this stellar team of historians, a team of historians. We tracked the footnotes back to their sources and we showed him that it was, it was crazy. You know, there's a Hebrew saying, you probably know it, lo dubim velo yar. There was, you know, there was no bear and there was no forest. Otherwise, the story is true that there was nothing to what he said. Can we ask you something about Israel, which is that Yonit and I have been talking earlier on this podcast about the upcoming elections and the possibility that the big breakthrough may come for Itamar Ben-Gvir uh, and his Jewish power party. Um, I read that you resigned your membership of the Young Israel Synagogue Movement because the leader of that organization had defended back in 2019 Benjamin Netanyahu's facilitation of a merger that allowed mm -hmm. that Ben-Gvir was involved in. I mean, given that Ben-Gvir seems to be a surging force, can you tell us more about why you did that and how you see things now with his rise in prominence? I, I did that and I wrote that and I said that uh, before I became a diplomat. And I think it would be very unwise of me, even though I'm somewhat of a novice, it's only been four months, for me to wade into the, um, and I'm deflecting your question in oh, case you haven't yes. figured <laughs> that out. You probably caught that on the third word. Um, uh, the word the, diplomat hinted, but the- Yes, the there you go. There you go. Uh, my actions in 2019, I think, stand for themselves, and uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> but, but you did say recently, I think already as a diplomat, you talked about what happened, the events, I think it was the end of June, the Western Wall, the Kotel, and the uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, attacking uh, a bar mitzvah at the egalitarian part of the Kotel, and you said any other place in the world that would be labeled as anti-Semitism. Um, right. So I didn't so, call it anti-Semitism. I was careful there, you know, true. you two Wordsmiths probably picked up. Any place else, we would have no trouble calling that anti-Semitism. And um, I was deeply disturbed about it. You know, I, I said earlier in the podcast that um, I was an equal opportunity critic, mm -hmm. uh, whether it came from the right, the left, the center, Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists. I was going to attack anti-Semitism. I've also become an equal, I didn't think this would be part of the job, an equal opportunity defender of Jews, irrespective of how they worship. I'll give you three examples, one of which you just cited. Mm -hmm. A few days into um, in entering office, Lufthansa uh, kicked a group of uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews, and they weren't a group. They were only a group by virtue of their all being going to the same uh, kever, the same burial site of a famous rabbi for his yard site for the anniversary of the day of his death, but kicked all those people who fit into that category off a plane because a few of of the people who were like that, I'm, I know it's convoluted, but I don't want to talk about them as a group. It would be as if you had a, a 130 black people in, on a plane and a few of them misbehaved and you kicked all of them off. And I, f I told Lufthansa what I thought, and I was, I was supported on this by our, our Secretary of the, of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who was investigating because these were American citizens. And Lufthansa, you know, has done some very serious soul searching and looking at where it went wrong, et cetera, has accepted the IRA definition as a, as a working definition, a tool for teaching its employees about anti-Semitism. So there my focus was on these Haredi passengers who had been so mistreated. Fast forward about a month later, I'm in Israel and I see this, or I hear of this attack on these seven families in the southern part of the wall where there was a governmental agreement in the previous government to allow non-traditional worship. And these hooligans, thugs, uh, more than hooligans, you know, but thugs and, and just uh, 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 an embarrassment to anything of we would call Jewish values, came there, tore pages out of their cedarim, their prayer books, used it to wipe their nose, disrupted, attacked. I met with one of the little boys whose bar mitzvah was uh, being held. He was there. I think there were seven families there doing it at, at uh, celebrating at the same time. His was in the furthest corner, and the women in his family formed a cordon around him and protected him, and he went on with his bar mitzvah. And it, afterwards, uh, Prime Minister Lapid called him. And that was my next, you know, uh, defense of Jews, et cetera. Uh, so when some ultra-Orthodox people said, oh, you're, you owe all Orthodox uh, uh, apology, I, point, I pointed them to Lufthansa. And now I'm here in the UK, but my next stop is Brussels, 
for an EU-sponsored meeting on, uh, in addition to our, uh, all the envoys on anti-Semitism will gathering, but the next day the EU is, is convening a meeting on ritual slaughter and the attempt to ban ritual slaughter, which of course uh, affects not just the Jewish community, but the Muslim community as well because of halal and the distinction of and what the, the rules are in halal. So, you know, if you're going to be attacked as a Jew, I'm going to try to defend you. So um, I'm, I'm not playing favorites. I'm not playing sides. The, the only thing I can say unequivocally is that if there's anti-Semitism, I'm going to try. I'm not going to succeed in eradicating. It's been around too long. But I'm going to try to call attention to it, to make people take it seriously, to make people understand it. And understand, and maybe to, I know we're running out of time to close with this, that it's not just, it's certainly a danger to Jews. And um, that alone would make it worth fighting. But it's more than just that. It's also a danger to democracy. Because if you accept the conspiracy that is anti-Semitism, you're saying, I don't trust I don't trust the media because it's Jewish controlled. I don't trust the financial system because it's Jewish controlled. I don't trust the government because it's Jewish controlled. You're beginning to create serious doubts about the efficacy of our democratic institution. I'm not making any analogy to the Holocaust, but that kind of talk reminds me of, of one other democratic government, which only lasted for about 12 years, and that is the Weimar Republic. It's a way of attacking it. You, you corrode it from the inside. Deborah Lipstadt, thank you so much for talking to us on Unholy. You're welcome. It's been a holy experience. Holy, <laughs> a holy enjoyable experience. How's that for words? <laughs> Perfect wordsmithery. Thank, thank you, you so much. You know, you called her Jewish warrior at the beginning, and that is exactly what she is. And I think that she is uh, remarkable in the way that she talks about these issues and sort of makes me, um, I'm sort of reassured that she is the person holding that title. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think also there are very few people, when you come to think of it, who Joe Biden could have picked that would have been what was inevitable with this role, which is a global figure, somebody who has standing not just in the United States, but really as a figure for the entire diaspora. And and what's interesting is she is seen as more than just a US official. I think she is seen as this global figure. And that is because she has got this kind of moral authority, partly because of the battle with David Irving, you know, she was in the movie, etc. But also just because of her consistency and vigor in this fight. So yeah, I think people feel a real connection. The fact that she's right here in London, and the response she is getting when people see her here in London suggests that I think, you know, she's seen as somebody for the whole of the Jewish people. So a, a big privilege to have had Deborah Lipstadt on Unholy. We should um, hand out some awards, Yonit. Who have we you should, got? I'm doing, am I doing chutzpah again? Is this what's happening D- now? I've I've sort of narrowed you back into that uh, (laughs) corner. So yes, it's on you. Did you manage to do that? Okay, so listen, I mean, it's a big, it's a, you know, it's always a busy week for chutzpah. It's always, I I think we find it that it's easier for us to find the chutzpah nominees than the mensch nominees in the world we live in. Um, So I was thinking my original thought was to uh, give it to, uh, and we mentioned Otsma Yehudit, Jewish Power, the party that Itamar Ben-Gvir leads. We we mentioned it earlier in our conversation, but one of his uh, candidates who uh, tried to attack Merav Michaeli, who had a child through a surrogate mother. And he said, and I quote, that Merav Michaeli bought a child on Amazon. This is what he said. Uh, the rest of, I, I don't know if you need the rest of the quote after I just said that, right? No, she you've got me at Amazon. Us, she shouldn't teach us about uh, respecting the other, I think, was the uh, actual continuation of that quote. But that is what he said. So that was my first uh, nominee for this week. But I think... Strong nominee. I think, I think it's okay that we've already, you know, last week we gave our mention award to the brave women of Iran. So we broke the mold in which we just have to give it to one person. We can give our awards to a nation. And I think that this week, 
it's a, really Saudi Arabia is well deserving of the chutzpah award, right? Together with Russia acting as the leaders of the OPEC plus agreeing on their biggest production cuts in more than two years to raise prices exactly countering the ep- uh, efforts of the United States in that regard, especially as we're looking into a very cold winter because of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. This is only, I will remind our listeners, three months after Biden's diplomacy, uh, fist bump diplomacy, it's been uh, called in Saudi Arabia. I think that's proper chutzpah. Wouldn't you think? I completely think that is chutzpah. You know, and the the lengths that the Americans over the decades have gone to to make nice with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. You know, people always think about the special relationship with Britain. They go on about that, or you know, the strategic alliance with Israel. You go through the political memoirs and things. The country that always gets the phone call first, that gets the best treatment, the people who were told first that the Gulf War of night of two thousand three, the invasion had begun. The first phone call went to the king or crown prince of Saudi Arabia from you know from the White House. They get the absolute red carpet treatment and when washington calls saying can you do us this favor they put the phone down i mean it is classic chutzpah i think a very worthy winner um i'm going to go slightly collective with Mm -hmm. our mensch nominee it's not a whole nation instead it is 12 people and i'm thinking of the jury in connecticut who this week ordered alex jones to pay just short of a billion dollars, $965 million to the people who suffered from his false claim that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax. Now, who knows if he's got that money? Who knows if he's ever going to pay even a fraction of it? But how good for him to be publicly called to account and shamed and hopefully bankrupted by this judgment. I mean, this is the way he made his name, that he went on his show and said that these grieving parents were actors and that even the images that people saw of those dead children in an elementary school were faked. Um, So it's very good. This is a good, what those 12 jurors did is strike a blow against the kind of fake news post-truth debasement that we have seen in recent years and so i think those jurors deserve collectively to be hailed as our menches and you know collective mensch of the week i i couldn't agree more you know it 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 shows you finally the truth has value and that lies have a price and the price is very high and it, it kind of, it, i felt like it's kind of this beacon right that shines this light in in this darkness and shows the world if you are and you know me i'm i like understatements i don't usually use harsh words but if you are a despicable person like alex jones and you say despicable things you're gonna pay for it i mean that is just the world for a minute made sense when i read that headline so i completely agree with your Mensha uh, Award of the Week. And we are wrapping up our conversation this episode. And we should say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat and Rom Atik. Jonathan? If you uh, enjoy what you hear, do follow us on Facebook, on Holy Podcast, on Instagram, the same. Uh, you can rate us, review us, spread the word because every notice does help. We will see each other next week, Yoni. It is. We're still the holiday of Sukkot, so still Chag Sameach, and we will see our you next week. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.